Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and to this our second episode dedicated to that maritime masterpiece of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The first episode is a fabulous reading of the poem designed to enthrall you with its weird, ethereal, supernatural glory. So do make sure you have listened to that if you have not yet done so. But today we are crossing the boundaries between history and science, between land and sea, between past and present. So if I have done my job properly, you will be thoroughly disorientated, but also immensely well informed. This episode puts the poem into a modern context. So here we have John Spicer, Professor of Marine Zoology at the School of Biological and Marine Sciences at the University of Plymouth. Now, John believes that the poem can teach us a lesson or two about the way that we treat our environment today. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. So here is the excellent John. John, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's a real pleasure to join you. So when Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it's fair to say the, the end of the 18th century was a very different place. In marine terms, how, how different was it? How can you explain that difference? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, what they would have known about the the sea would have been mainly from people who were making their living there and fishermen and everything else. But the, the scientific study of the sea, it doesn't really get started to, in, into the 19th century. So you would have known next to nothing apart from the folklore. Um, I mean, even just dredging, you know, to... to deep water was in the 1820s, 30s, you know, I mean, so he, he would have known very little at all. And he himself, when he wrote The Mariner, hadn't actually been on the sea. Really? I yeah. didn't know that. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the um, the albatross, the bird, plays such a big part in it. And that, I suppose that's because they knew more about the sky than they did the sea. Well, I, I think that the, the, the sort of mythology around it, the albatross, and, and, and it's such a... a it's such a, a common thing for people in that part of the world to, to see the albatross and for it to follow boats. So I think, you know, there was already a folk, folklore associated with that. I don't think it was so much the science. 
Um, oh, and, and, and it was a really good good omen. It was it was seen as something that was good. If there was an albatross flying alongside you. Mm. If if Coleridge could uh, time travel and pay us a visit, what do you think he'd say? Um, I, I think he would be shocked at his poem being so relevant to today. Um, one of the the things about his day was that the ocean was scary but it was also inexhaustible. It was a source of lots of different things and it was inexhaustible. From to come and find out that it's not inexhaustible and the slimy things that he was talking about, you know, are actually under threat <laughs> and, and that we need to love them more. He would recognise a lot of his own poem in the situation that we're in just now, I think. What are the, what, what are the main themes in, in his poem? Well... It starts off with, I mean, here, here they are down in southern waters and um, in a ship and it's being followed by an albatross. And for some reason, he, he kills it. It's, it's, it's a really bizarre sort of um, incident, actually, where, I mean, I mean it just says, um, you know, that they're out there, they see the, they see the albatross and then he says something like, you know, God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. And you think, well, where did that come from? You know, there's obviously something going on inside this guy. What lookest thou so? With my crossbow, I shot the albatross. And it sort of comes from nowhere. And you think, well, hold on, this is this bird's following you. It's a good omen. And, and it actually says it welcomed it almost as a Christian brother. You know, there was some sort of affinity there. And all of a sudden he shoots it and you think, what is that about? And yet, you know, human beings do strange things. So... Mm. As soon as it's the like al- an instinctive action, isn't it? It's um, he, he sort of does it without really knowing what he's doing, and it, it's almost like a, a kind of a, a snap decision, isn't it? Well, he, he says later, I have, I, um, I had done a hellish thing, and then everyone there realizes he's done a hellish thing as well, and you know he says, why, why did I kill the bird that, that made the breeze to blow? Yeah, it's, it's almost as if, as you say, he's done something, and they thought, well, why do you do that? You know, I've seen funny instances of that, you know, where people do stupid things and then reflect on it. And that's quite funny. But this is the very opposite. This is tragic beyond belief. Mm. It's clear that, the, that his, his human world is it's out of kilter with the natural world, isn't it? Well, except that, I mean, he, he seems to know that the albatross is, is, is something good and, and right. You know, just the way he, he talks about it. Um, and then once once he, he's killed it, he, he knows he's done something wrong. So it, it's both. I mean, he, he realises that he needs the natural world. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a companion. You know? I mean, it's funny, there's a, a theory called biophilia, which is, you know, why, why, why do we bother with biodiversity and creatures in general? And Ed Wilson, who was um, the person that coined the term biodiversity, he came up with this term biophilia, which said that because we bear life, um, we sort of extend that empathy to other creatures, and you know, so we 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 have a a natural affinity with well our only known companions in the universe, you know, deities aside, um, and 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 he feels that very much, and and I think once he kills the albatross, and all sorts of things start to go wrong in the voyage after that. And there's a supernatural element as well as the natural element. I mean, it's really, really mixed up. It's really mucked up. But he knows that something deeply wrong has happened and he's contributed to it. And I think that's that's where your your comment about, you know, our mismatch with the natural world. We rely on it. We know we've got a natural affinity. But at the same time, in just our business, we tend to destroy and damage things. 
Mm. I think the um, there's a very clear theme of loneliness and isolation, uh, which happens after he kills the albatross, which I suppose is part of that biophilia, as you describe it. Yeah, and and in fact, I mean, he's, he's totally divorced from everything, including himself. It's it's actually a terrifying piece to to, to read. I mean, okay, I'm I'm not an I'm not I'm an, an English major. Um, I'm a biologist, but mm-hmm. I, I still remember reading and just the sheer horror, and particularly for for someone who is into marine biology, um, his description of marine life when he's in this really bad place is terrifying. Can can, can I can I read it to you? Can I find it and? And read it yeah, to you because it's, it's quite it's it's quite fascinating. So it, this is him. He's the, the the moon is shining and he's looking into the water and all sorts of terrible things have happened. Um, and he says, beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire. Blue, glossy green and velvet black, they coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. I mean, it's just... He, he, up until this point, he has absolutely hated them, and now all of a sudden something's changed, and he says, oh, happy living things. Up until now, he's called them slimy things. He talks about the slimy things that are under the sea. No tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me and I blessed them unaware. And In other words, he, he looks and he, he sees it's really, really horrible, but it comes to a point where he looks down and he thinks, there's real beauty here. These things, he calls them slimy and then all of a sudden he's saying that, you know, that, that they're, 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 they're beautiful. And then that part finishes with the self-same moment I could pray. And from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. And so having looked at this marine stuff that was underneath and just thought, this is terrible, he sees something beautiful. And that seems to be tied in with this this redemption, if you can use such an an old word, um, where he's odds everything. He looks and he sees something of beauty even in all the horror and the, the, the supernatural nonsense that he's been through. And at that point, this albatross, which had literally was hung round his neck, he says, in, in place of a cross, just to show just how far he was from redemption. And it falls off just at that point. And I, I think Coleridge would recognise that. There's, a, there's lots in the poem, and, and I, I think it's more of a metaphor than a parable. It's not as if he's written about our our present sort of day and it's turned out to be true I just think the metaphor in it of someone who has turned away from their own nature actual nature um, and it's a long way back again but there is a way back and, and I, I love yeah. that Yeah and it's um, this is where it's so helpful I think combining history with marine biology because you hear you've got the, 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 the ancient mariner and, and killing the albatross does it sets in motion a series of events that essentially changes his world. I mean, everything about what he does kind of it follows from from killing the albatross. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about how we've changed our world in the past, how how the marine environment has been has been changed, whether it's through uh, moving sediment or burning fossil fuels. Yeah, well, essentially, in the, I mean, we have always 
we have always manipulated our environment. It's something that's 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 part of humankind. When we, when we're living in an area, we manipulate it for for food, for safety, for all sorts of things. Um, really, we we as soon as we start to do that. In, in, in any serious way and I mean you're talking about thousands of years ago we were able to affect small parts of the environment um, we, we, we can see that as soon as human beings move out from, from the, the, their places of origin into new areas those new areas they lose a lot of their, their living stuff they lose a lot of the biodiversity you know, mainly, mainly through hunting the, you know, the, the big things and so anywhere human beings go there tends to be an impact um, they, they restructure the, 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 the plants and the trees, you cut down trees um, and e even as hunter-gatherers they would sort of restructure things that restructuring of the environment is fundamental that was okay maybe when there was a few million human beings, even then we could still make lots of things go extinct really in the last 250 years the human population has just really taken off in a way that we've never seen anything like before and that has impacted biodiversity, all living things, through a major restructuring of every element of our earth, to be honest. I mean, we really have managed to restructure living things and the environment that they're in. Mm. And in terms of, I mean, how has global warming through burning fossil fuels, you know, we've raised the temperature of the planet, how has that affected the ocean? Well, I mean, in, in a, a couple of different ways. One, the, the warming of the atmosphere has meant that the ocean has warmed up. Um, and the warming of the ocean isn't just a case of putting the temperature up. The whole way that the ocean is structured changes um, according to temperature. It's, it's more likely for there to be sort of areas where you have high temperatures and low temperatures. Um, so there's what we call stratification within the ocean. But also because the, the warming has been sort of achieved by carbon dioxide creating a hothouse earth, that carbon dioxide, fortunately for us, goes into the ocean. Most of it goes into the ocean and it saves us from a massive global warming. But the problem then is that with carbon dioxide in the ocean, that actually produces a very weak um, I, I, I want to say the word acid because it's called ocean acidification, but it's it's really just making it less alkaline. It doesn't go doesn't go fully acid, but it changes the chemistry of the water. You know, it's not just the like the, the pH which gives an idea of acidity. The chemistry of the water is is altered. If, if oxygen dissolves in water, it just dissolves. When carbon dioxide goes into water, it it totally and utterly changes the chemistry of that water. And that has knock-on effects for all living things, particularly things with shells, calcium carbonate, but all living things, to be honest. It's interesting thinking about, you know, when this happened, because I know there are scientists who talk about um, there being a kind of epoch scale boundary that's been crossed. And it was crossed at some point in the last two centuries. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you have a kind of a clear idea of when that happened more exactly in relation to human behaviour? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, that, that, that's, I'm, I'm not a, a geologist. I've got lots of geologist friends, and and um, I, I love that the fact that they're, they're very much into stuff that you can see, hear, smell, touch, you know, so so the science of it, you know, the, the Anthropocene, as it's been called, this new age of, of human interference, they want to ground it in something that you can see, hear, smell, touch, you know, physical things. 
Um, and so while there's a sort of feeling that a lot of the change happened and started to happen from what the 1700s onwards, the, the Industrial Revolution, they're looking for things that, if you like, would demarcate different types of rock. So ge geologists look into the deep past and they've got these different um, groupings, the, the Cambrian, the Ordovician, the Silurian, all these different ages. But there's something that happens in the rocks where they can say, that's a difference. And then they give a, another name after that. Um, and I like the fact that what they're doing is they're saying, well, okay, so what would there be in the rocks that would show that we had actually entered this Anthropocene, even though it hasn't quite happened yet, but the time hasn't passed, what would be there? And of course, they're thinking of radioactive fallout from, from nuclear tests. They're thinking of plastics, um, stuff that you, know, you could, in, in a million years' time, you come and see, look, there's the, there's the Anthropocene here. Oh, how do you know it's that? Well, I mean, look, you, you see there's bits of plastic in the sediment. Look, if we measure the radioactivity. You know, and th those sorts of things. Now, th there's a lot more evidence than that, but that would really, put, if you wanted to put a, a date, you could go for a sort of like 1950 after the nuclear tests and as the plastics were beginning to take off. That's my understanding as a biologist of geologists. Yeah, no, that's very, it's very clear. And do, you, do you think that, you know, more history will help us achieve a clearer idea of what happened? Yeah, I, I, it's funny because um, I feel such a charlatan because most of the talks that I give on biodiversity um, are historical rather, rather than scientific. Okay. Um, because, I mean, and, and like, like yourself, I don't think you can understand things until you've got a grasp of, of the history. And the history actually illuminates. It just doesn't um, recount what's done in the past. It, it, it really does add understanding um, so yeah, it's 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 ironic. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a biologist. I've just talked about geology, and I'm confessing <laughs> to you that most of my time I talk about history. <laughs> but, but <laughs> well, you're not, on a history podcast, John. This is good. <laughs> this is good. But I'm, but I'm not <laughs> trained. Probably, but I'm not trained in either, and and that that's quite frustrating. I would I would love to be a, a genuine polymath like there was in the, the the past because I I feel myself having to constantly not apologise because I think the view of other disciplines is is important. And it's it's fun, but you have to recognise that it's not my expertise. But yeah, yeah. I've got something that I think that might be worthwhile to, to listen to, um, even even for a historian. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> right. that's fantastic. That crossover is good. I mean, do you do you have well, one area where history and science really cross over? Of course, is in scientists who were working in the past. I mean, do you have a great deal of admiration for marine biologists and whose whose shoulders you are standing on? Yeah, very much. I mean, and again, that's um, when I give a lot of um, public talks. I'm, I'm very often talking about marine biologists and their and their lives. Someone once said that the, the, the biography and autobiography of scientists is really dull. Well, they just must be reading the wrong books, or they're not written by you. Um, I mean, they're, they're they're far from dull, and particularly in, in, in marine biology, there are some amazing characters. And and in fact, I was asked to give a a, a talk at the. Um, Sir Alistair Hardy Foundation for Ocean Science um, on their 75th birthday and they wanted me to talk for an hour on Alistair Hardy, the man and his beliefs. Now this is, this is a, a conference that's run for plankton biologists and here's me as a biologist giving a historical talk on this man's theology and life. Um, yeah. You know, and 
and you've introduced him now. You've got to tell us a bit about him, at least. Alistair Hardy. Um, Alistair Hardy was a, a, a man who was dedicated to finding out how the plankton worked um, and, and to making long-term records of plankton. Um, he, he made a device which you could actually sample plankton with just by putting it in the back of a ship. You know, you could just say to the Queen Mary, could you take this with you? Yeah, OK, that's great. And they take it with them and they just drag it across the ocean. And he, he got this year by year. And the, the, the conference I was talking about, that was 75 years of this man's vision for scouring the ocean, collecting the plankton, and then looking at what it tells us, a historical approach to what's happening in climate. And it's one of the best pictures of our changing climate that we've got 75 years of watching the ocean change because of climate change so that, that's when what did, when he did, did he start doing that what date was he that? did that in 19, 1931 um but but what was what was interesting was that as a teenager um, he had a a, a a very sort of strange experience which changed him for the, the rest of his life um and he wanted to reconcile science and faith but he never actually attempted that until he'd retired because he wanted to be taken seriously as a scientist first and so all of that great achievement you could see as a sideline to what he thought his main main sort of um, question and um, what his main mission was which I find fascinating One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. Um, I, I love this idea of him um, collecting plankton. And it does it does make me think of about the different types of human behavior at sea. And I was wondering what human behaviour at sea has had had a u- unique impact on our environment over the last couple of hundred years? It's got to be overfishing. It's got to be overfishing. T- Thomas Henry Huxley, who was... Um, it's the history again. But, um, Darwin's bulldog. Um, he, he, he wrote an article which basically said the sea was inexhaustible in terms of what you could take from it. But he put a little proviso which says using current fishing methods. And knowing fine well that current fishing methods were, were developing quite quickly. And and that started that started really the, the field of marine biology in a lot of European countries. People that wanted to know, is that true? You know, and particularly with better fishing methods, would would it be true? And what we've seen in the intervening period, that, that was back at the, the end of the nineteenth century, 
in the intervening period, we've seen the collapse of, of fisheries and a, a real pressure on fisheries to such an extent that there was a, a paper published 10 years ago which, um, using modelling, which, which said that all of the major commercially important fish species would be fished down to 2050. And, and, um, sorry, they would be fished down before 2050. Now, that, that's a terrifying thing to, to see. Um, now, that was a modelling study, but, but even if you look at pictures from the past, if you take just pictures of people who were fishing um, and, and holding up big fish, then you see from 1940 to the present day, the big fish get smaller, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and so that's probably one of the, the major ways in which we've directly restructured the ocean. The, the other way is through warming, our warming of the, the planet and producing CO2. We, through that, we have probably started to restructure, do one of the greatest experiments in the manipulation of ocean life that's ever been done. What about shipwrecks who've got, you know, um, uh, fuel still inside them, sitting on the seabed? I mean, is that good, is that a danger moving forward? Are they going to corrode and then start leaking and spilling oil everywhere? Um, they, they will. I mean, but things like that tend to be local. I don't, I don't want to play down the significance of it because, I mean, it, it can be a, a dreadful impact um, locally and regionally. There's no two ways about that. But um, co- compared to those global things, which are a different order of magnitude. Um, mind you, the scale of the human enterprise is such it depends how many shipwrecks you've got, doesn't it, really? Um, well, I suppose you have wreck hotspots, don't you? Yeah. Where it might cause more of a problem, whether it's off, I, I don't know, um, Malta or somewhere off Gibraltar, you know, where, where there's um, kind of a narrowing, whether it's because of geography or strategy, and that leads to there being an unusually large number of ships on the seabed. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be honest, I, I suppose I wouldn't really consider that as much of a... That negative seems to me to be outweighed by what shipwrecks give us back. Um, now, that sounds a, a bit strange, but there's, there was a, a ship found off the coast of Portugal, which had, I think it had soya um, in it for its cargo. Um, and when they went down to see if they could r- reclaim just anything from it at all, it was packed full of deep sea animals. Um, you know, as a little bit unexpected, and the reason for that is because deep parts of the ocean, there's there, there's material that comes from under the earth that's full of sulphur, it's six hundred degrees centigrade, and it creates little oases round about these hydrothermal vents. So very very hot water that's coming out from the, the earth's crust, and so there's a little area which are all living on the the sulfurous stuff that's coming out. So there's bacteria that uses sulphur, and then there's lots of creatures that eat the sulphur using bacteria. So you get these amazing spots called hydrothermal vent faunas um, all over the, the ocean, wherever there's, wherever there's volcanic activity. And of course you think, well, how do they get around? Because volcanic activity is quite delineated in the ocean, but they can use dead whales or shipwrecks to jump around. Um, and I think that's quite neat. You know, you could calculate how many wrecks that you would need to get it get to a certain distance, or how many whale carcasses you, to get a certain distance. And that's quite that's quite fun. And, and you know, that's good. I, I also I I heard from my friend Timmy Gambin uh, at Malta. Hello, Timmy. I know you'll be listening to this about sea sponges on shipwrecks. Is this something you've come across as well? Um, not 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 specifically. I mean, to be honest, sponges are such big big news generally. 
you know, I mean, they're, they're just incredible creatures. They go down to the Antarctic and it's as if someone has just collected them from all over the world and dumped them in a big pile. There's just so really? many of them. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. And, and in fact, what's even... Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm off, off your target, but you... But you, you, you it, was, it was your fault. You've introduced it. There's these things <laughs> called glass sponges and, and they do look like glass. And in fact, they're made of silicon dioxide. So, I mean, technically, you know, they are, they are glass and you just find hundreds of them and the glass sponges are quite different from the, the other ones you certainly wouldn't want to use it in the bath you, you do it once and then you go to A&E um, but they're beautiful to look at and the amount of water they filter and, yeah. and, and even, even just their, their biology what animals do you know that you could squeeze through some sort of um, well, take a lady's stocking, why not and, and put a sponge through a lady's stocking to its individual cells mix it up and leave it for a couple of days and it crawls back together again. I mean, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's actually terrifying, though. I mean, they're, they're just amazing animals. But I'd be interested to hear about your ones on the, the, the wrecks. Are they particularly special? Um, yes, well, I think there's some science going on to try and find out about them filtering water, absorbing CO2, you know, what their benefits to yeah. the world are and linking the benefits of sea sponges to the fact that they are now found in um, unique locations because of shipwrecks. They love shipwrecks. Right, OK. So so you've turned biologist and I, I've turned historian. This is great fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and all, of, all of our listeners are having a, a science lesson and a history lesson at the same time. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about shipwrecks here, but also... Um, the just go back a little bit to what we were talking about marine um biologists scientists of the yeah. past um obviously the ability to travel the world and to study it depends on you being able to have ships so so there has to be a link here between britain's imperial past and our knowledge of global marine science is that fair yeah i mean it's it, it's quite a, it's quite a tight link as well i mean the it was Captain Cook's third voyage that he took a you know, biologist with him, someone that knew about the marine marine life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful that we got a chance through our Navy connections to explore so much of the world. But as you say, you know, it's a, it's a two-sided coin, isn't it? Um, and, and we would go to places and there wasn't much much um, store put on the, the, the indigenous knowledge. I mean, we took things and we brought them back and studied them. And that, that's, I mean, that in some form still continues, although there's definitely a move move away from it to try and involve the people who who um, have the biodiversity round about them. Mm. I've, I've certainly read accounts of people coming back on sort of 18th and 19th century voyages with their ships full of plants. plants. That seems to make some sense to me. You can keep your plants alive, but how, how did they do it with kind of marine species or, or marine knowledge? Were they just writing about it? Did they actually bring physical things back? It, it, it would be preserved. I mean, the, the, the Royal Navy gave um, a ship, the HMS Challenger, um, to biologists to basically go around the world and map the physics, chemistry and biology of the ocean. You know, none of you just go off to you know an area in Antarctica or anything like that. The ocean, and and they, they spent um, over five years doing exactly that, um, doing the physics, chemistry, and biology of the ocean, and they brought back lots and lots of samples of animals from all over the world. And when you look at the report that was done, and that was, as I say, principally on a a, a Royal Navy ship that was given over and sort of um, adapted for the biologists to use. 
Um, but you know, I mean, it, it wasn't just a biological thing. It was we did this as the as Britain's sort of idea. Um, so it's, mm. it's, it's difficult to take those two things apart. What's your own personal experience of travelling the world, seeking out uh, evidence and and uh, and things to bring back? Um, the, the evidence and things to, to to bring back. I mean, very often you're not allowed to bring things back now unless you work with people out there. If you've got special permits, and, and I think that's that's really good. Um, I think many of us have have learned a long time ago the best way to do science is to go somewhere and collaborate with the people who are there rather than do this sort of commando in yourself and do what you have to do and run back out again. Um, and, and that's probably the, the most fun and useful thing about science, that you get to not just meet interesting people, but you get to make friends who think in a particular way that might be different from you, and you have to adjust to that. And that's quite fun. And it, Can you give us an example? Um, well, I mean, probably the, the very best example that I can think of is I spent um, in 2017, I was down in Antarctica working on why you had gigantic species down there. Um, gigantic? Sorry, I missed that. What uh, was the word? Gigantic species, yeah. It's, this, it's the, Scottish, the Scottish brogue is, 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 is wild. <laughs> um, and, and when I say um, animals, I'm, I'm thinking of things which are related to beach hoppers. But they're about ten centimeters long, so you don't want them hopping in your beach, really. Um, <laughs> you know, at least you'd keep the children away from them because they, they do bite. So I, I was working on them, but on the base, um, I was trying to think what nation was not represented. And then when you talked about ideas about science, everyone had a slightly different approach, and what you ended up with was a much richer view that was your own. You know, um, as long as you were open to what people were, were saying, doing, and that was from that was from everything, from how you hold a party, <laughs> through to how you think about um, gigantism and animals, um, because people came from different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, and you had to work together in Antarctica. I mean, you die if you don't work together <laughs> down there. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's just a, not not just that it's a nice thing to do. That cooperation is really important, and learning to do that and benefiting from it is just tremendous. Um, when you're talking about um, the knowledge of uh, indigenous populations who've been there for a lot longer than you have, um, that seems to be a relatively new new way of, of um, kind of being open minded enough and, and to, to, to studying the world around us and certainly to studying the past. I mean, it really it does yeah. apply to historians and anthropologists yeah. as well. Um, you know, do you have experience of that? Um, I, I spent some time in Vancouver Island working at a marine station called Bamfield, which was part of a um, Native American reservation. Um, and the, the people who, who lived there and have lived there for hundreds of years, they knew their biology really well and their marine biology really well. And trying to convince them to write it down um, just so that it wouldn't be lost. Because, of course, you know, and you'll know this as a historian, that there are cultures and there are times where if something's worth knowing, why do something so little to write it down? It must be passed on orally because it's too important just to, to write down somewhere. It's something which should be in the collective consciousness of the, the, you know, the, the leaders of a people or, or the, the people themselves. And so they had this. It was passed down from father to, to son. Um, and they could tell you when the marine animals spawned, how they behaved, a whole load of stuff. In fact, I even found out some things about the animals I was studying that I didn't know 
through through talking to the, the fellow who was the head of the reservation, and so they, they, it wasn't it wasn't that they even had a different knowledge. Um, they, they did because it, it was much more holistic. I mean, the, the, their idea of myth and biology is integrated in a way which which I actually found quite refreshing. Um, but of course, I was only interested in the the biology part, and we were able to talk not just as equals, but sometimes they were way ahead in terms of the knowledge and understanding, even of what I would have called biology. That's great, and there must be lots of that. In, um, in, in Chile, that there are, there are carvings in the rocks of them going whale hunting. Now, irrespective of the, you know, what we think of whale hunting um, now, in the past, that was how they made a living. And it's, there's hundreds of, of these drawings, how to catch the whale, which paths to take out. And it's very obvious from the, the, the drawings what, what the past has left behind, to quote um, one of your great historians. Um, you, you can see that they understood the morphology of a whale and the, under, the, the inside of a whale and how to deal with it and what it was, what it was doing. And I, I just think that's, to miss that out, even apart from the idea of justice, we're missing out in a whole load of understanding um, and the fact that we like to think we're first, <laughs> you know, and we're not always first. It's quite humbling. It's a difference between knowledge and understanding as, as well, isn't it? So um, I think, you know, constantly in the past, you come across people who seem to have an intuitive knowledge of something and that they know it's right. They know it's true, yeah. but they haven't quite understood it yet. And um, I think that's really interesting. And and being able to provide the layers of understanding to um, to to kind of known facts is something so key in, in science and the history of science. Yeah, but except that we don't have it today. Um, the, the work that I did down in Antarctica, um, I mean, basically I was looking at how oxygen constrained the body size of things that look like beach fleas. Um, I read in a newspaper, I won't tell you which one, but you can probably imagine, <laughs> that I had said um, that the main finding of the, the study was fish and chips off the menu by 2050 unless global warming stopped, scientists says. So there you don't even have the knowledge or the understanding, so I'm certainly not going to be critical in the past. I think we've got a bigger problem now than has ever been yep. in the past. No, that's a great example, isn't it, of, um, of, of misinformation, kind of getting things wrong. And, and now you're out there, you've travelled thousands of miles trying to do your job. And and the one thing you want to do is to is to get that information across the past, and then some idiot idiot bends it. Yeah. Whereas th there does seem to be a, a thing, in, in, in at least some past cultures, where if something was true, it was worth knowing for the sake of being true, um, which I, I really I, I really quite liked. I mean, I, I love that about a lot of the Celtic people who who wrote. Yeah, some of them wrote about what they've they thought of the ocean and felt about the ocean, and they felt it to be true, and that was why it was worth passing on. And I would quite like that a bit more, maybe with our press, with our <laughs> society generally. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's finish up. I, I think we can, probably fair to say, we can take some warnings from the rhyme of the ancient mariner, can't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if, you, if you turn on a world which keeps you alive, I mean, it's not just that biodiversity feeds us, clothes us, it keeps us alive. It is our life support system. So even the most selfish person has to appreciate that you don't screw around with what keeps you alive. And in the same way as that mariner, for no reason, 
seemingly no reason at all, just decided to take it out. And we do that, and we've done that. It's a, it's a historical thing. We've done it time and time again. Now there's 7.9 billion of us. It's, it's, it's a lot harder to ignore the consequences of it. And you can't destroy the stuff that keeps you alive. The good thing about the Mariner is that there is at least some redemption. There is some turning. And at the very end, I mean, the, the whole thing is set, this man talking to some wedding guests. And one of the wedding guests, I can't remember the exact wording, but it basically says he goes away knowing more, but understanding more. And, and I, love, I love that as a picture. And I think for whether you're a scientist, a, a historian, philosopher, but the idea that after you've talked with people, or communicated with people, they go away knowing and genuinely understanding more. Um, I think that's that's a great thing, and I love that about the Mariner, and I want to see more of it in my own experience. Yeah, it's a lovely place to stop there. I mean, it's both a warning and a, and an inspiration. I think it's a, that's why it's so powerful. John, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. I'm very much refreshed after some proper poetry and some modern analysis. So do get in touch with suggestions for more maritime-themed poetry or any kind of literary contribution, and we can definitely get a maritime literary theme going. Please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us go up the charts, and that allows more people to discover us, which allows us to do our job, which is to educate people about maritime history. Now, leaving a review on iTunes is super easy to do, particularly if you are listening on an iPhone. So please just scroll down, leave a five-star review, and I promise we will read it out. Please also remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please check out both of those excellent institutions to see what they are up to. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation can be found at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up, you can become a member of this fabulous society which has been helping to preserve our maritime history and to educate people about maritime history for over a century. It is worth every penny of your very reasonable membership fee.